Hi, welcome to Financial Plan and Explain, and I'm your host, Mike Menninger, Certified Financial Planner and owner and founder of Menninger & Associates Financial Planning. Uh, this is a continuation of last week's episode where we're going through questions in, that were asked of us um, and we're just going through them and, and uh, hopefully they touch upon and can answer some questions that you may have because we expand upon the question to kind of talk about the, the subject material. Um, we're planners first. It's, it, you know, fundamentally, uh, it's all about financial planning. And so what we try to do is, is utilize our skills in financial planning to respond to people's questions. So pick up where we left off from last week. Uh, what's our next question? What should I look for in a financial planner? Good one. And what sort of questions should I ask when I start interviewing for one? Um, uh, That's a good one. Great it's a question, real, yeah. you know what? It, I don't even say it's loaded. Um, you know, I, I've always said that if you're going to deal with a financial planner, it's not somebody that you just go to the store and buy one it's someone that you should hopefully work with for the rest of your life. And if that's the case, then I think that the main things are you need to have somebody with whom you can trust and somebody that will provide good financial advice. Now, let's break them down a little bit more. You know, somebody you trust to do the right thing for you, basically a fiduciary, yeah, okay? Yeah. And, you know, that's become very popular is, you know, a fiduciary by definition puts your interests first. And, you know, that's one of the things about certified financial planner designations. We answer to a higher power. <laughs> and so we're held to a significantly higher standard as a CFP. And that higher standard is a fiduciary standard. So that's a great question to ask. And you know you really got to trust that the person truly is. Uh, they could say they're a fiduciary. I hope to think that they're not lying, but you really want to make sure that they're doing what is in your best behalf. And oftentimes you can pick up on that pretty quickly when they're trying to sell you something. Okay, <laughs> when they're trying to sell you something, you know, oftentimes it's usually because they more care more about this chair than the one across the table and that makes me sick and it makes the hair stand up on the back of my neck and then providing good technical advice you know you want great you could trust the person but if they don't know what they're talking about well then that's another problem so um, I think to go they, they don't go hand in hand but I think if you can get someone with whom you can truly trust acts in a fiduciary manner and is very well versed knowledgeable then that's a great combination and uh, you know to a lesser extent certainly helps to like the person you know what yeah. I mean I actually yeah. you know we have a mutual client can't stand his accountant yeah <laughs> I'm like you know what he, he loathes every time he's gonna call him yeah he loathes every time he's gonna go see him my goodness at least Someone you like, you don't yeah. go in there. Uh, what, what are you guys finding from? When I ask clients, you know, I ask them. I say, "What are you looking for in our relationship?" Because I want to understand, you know. And they, what most clients look for, especially if they've worked with a financial advisor that didn't work out, it's you have to understand what motivates the financial advisor and what 
how you work together as a team because mm -hmm. it's like you said it's not just it about their seat it's about the client so you know you you want a, an advisor who's going to encourage you to be a team it can't just only be all on the client asking the right questions or on the advisor trying to pry out information you have to understand that you're working together ideally for the rest of your life as a team to build financial goals and success and you just you know you can you know asking questions what kind of questions can you ask them what got you into the business yeah you know what 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 motivates you what gets you up what excites you about your job yeah well the the thing about it is um what i've found is through the 21 years i've been a financial planner is that all of my clients have really become my extended family um i've gotten to know them very well and and Quite honestly, 75% of them uh, I consider friends. Yep. And so what happens over time is you really get to know them and you're able to help them. Sometimes you're ahead of them because you really get to know a lot of the, the true... The, we're psychologists too is really where I'm going with it. Yeah. You know, we're oftentimes psychologists. So you know, it really comes down to, um, again, making sure that you have somebody that you can trust and somebody that you will do the right thing for you, you know, put your interests first and can also provide you with really sound technical advice. And, and just to add on, um, I think one of the things that our clients especially really like from us that make us so sticky with them is we provide that level of education. Right. We don't just give a list of recommendations and strategies and say, See ya. we're CFPs, <laughs> we know, so right. do what we say. We want to help you understand so that you're well-versed and can more likely to follow through on our recommendations. Right. Well, and, and that's one of the things, uh, you know, thank you for bringing that up, Ryan. I think it's one of the things that, you know, I consider our firm to set ourselves apart. Uh, it's one of the, I believe, I've always believed education and knowledge are powerful. And, you know, if, if I'm going to be providing client with a list of strategies and recommendations, you know, I like for them to understand why they're doing it as opposed to Mike or Ryan or Kyle or, or Andy or Chris said so. And so uh, they're more likely to embrace the recommendations if they understand why. So you mean you like explaining financial planning? Yeah, financial <laughs> Imagine that. I wonder who came up with that idea. <laughs> financial planning explained. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, yeah, teed that one right up. Didn't <laughs> uh, next question. Given the real estate market today, would a young worker like myself be wiser to take out a loan and buy or continue renting? Wow. Great mm. question. Um, interestingly enough, uh, we had an episode, and Kyle, you, were, you, were, you and I tag team on that one. We had an episode probably about, oh God, two months ago, three months ago, where we were talking about first-time home buyers. And so this is, this is one I'm just going to tee up to you because you're also someone who's in that boat. Yeah. You know, that could have been you writing that question because you and I have had this discussion. Should I buy in this crazy real estate market? You know, how I look at it is, you know, take this question two, you know, two separate ways. You know, you got the real estate market today and then you have whether or not in general it's better to buy a house or to rent. And, you know, when I first, you know, started thinking about this myself because I went through this process this year. Do I want to buy a home? Um, and 
overall, owning a home, in my circumstance, if you can afford it, it's better. You know, you're putting money into a mortgage and you're paying yourself back as opposed to paying someone's mortgage for you in the form Correct. of renting. Renting has its benefits, you know, it's, it's cheap. You don't have to pay for the washing machine if it breaks. You don't have to, you know, it has its benefits. But if you can afford it, generally, you know, I would suggest, you know, getting that mortgage and, you know, buying a house if, if it's suitable for you. It's a huge commitment. But, you know, with that being said, given the current market, <laughs> you know, that's crazy. why it's separate. Yeah. That's why, you know, me personally, I decided to wait. I decided not to get a home this well, year. Well, there's, there's two rules of thumb. Um, one of which is that the value of the home needs to increase by 10% in order for you to get your yes. money back. Yeah. And that's because you're going to have closing costs in the beginning, realtor costs on the back end, yep. and taxes on both sides. Um, the other thing is that you really want to be stable in your work because when you buy a house, you're basically locking yourself down yep. to mm -hmm. where it is that you want to live. So this is a great topic. Very, very good question. And boy, I'll tell you what, it's really hard to buy a house in today's environment when you're watching these prices and people you know, paying 10% over asking price or offering 10% yeah. over asking price and getting shut out. It's nuts. Yep. Good question, though. What is the highest interest rate I can get on $50,000? I've been asked this before. <laughs> oh. I've been asked, what interest rate can you get me? Right. Yeah. And, and so... I think the problem with that is that a lot of people don't truly understand interest rate. Mm -hmm. And they may be thinking rates of return, uh, but if they're thinking interest rate, that could also be sort of the older generation. Shopping banks. Shopping mm -hmm. banks. And, and that was very typical in the 50s through the 80s. Yep. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, hey, let's go to this bank because the higher CD rates. They're offering more than 0.1. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. You know, so, so if the rate is 0.01 versus 0.02, ooh, I can get double the rate at this bank. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's, it's just not practical anymore. So, unfortunately, that's a, that's a loaded question. The highest interest rate, you know, as we indicated before, when it comes to any type of investment, uh, you know, the, the higher rate of return you want, the more risk you have to take. If you don't want to take any risk whatsoever, then you're not going to get very much of uh, a rate. Yeah, again, I would look at what's the goal of your 50000 You're looking for income? Are you looking for capital appreciation? There's, you know, there's differences of where you'd put it based on the goal of it and your plan. And when you need it. And when you need it, Obviously. of course. Yep. Next question. I just got my tax... <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I'll tell you so, what. How can I make it grow for year-end chopping? Well, guess what? If you just got your um, refund, okay, and you figure it's roughly April or May or whatever the case may be, and if you're looking for it for year-end chopping, this just goes back to everything fundamentally that we've been talking about is it's all about um, time horizon mm -hmm. and, you know, how do you make it grow? The last thing you want to do is make it grow in the reverse direction, as though it's lose <laughs> <Yeah>. money. <laughs> so, you know, time horizon. Now, I'm going to pivot off of that question. And, you know, a lot of people I find, and it isn't even the question, but I have people saying, hey, you know, what happened? Like, I owed, you know, $1,500 or $2,000 in taxes. You know, how do I prevent that? And so, you know, preventing it, if you're an individual and you don't have business where you could take tax deductions and all kinds of silly things moving around, 
you know, if you're an individual and you're just a regular salaried individual and you owe money at the end of the year or you're married and you owe money at the end of the year, it's pretty simple. You're not withholding enough from your paychecks. Mm -hmm. And we've noticed this since 2018 when the Trump tax code came in, it really lowered the taxes, but the algorithms that they used for paychecks were not taking enough money out and people were owing at the end of the year. One of the things that we do routinely with all of our clients, new clients, just routinely, uh, we always do checkups in the middle of the year. We take a look at their pay stubs, we look at other ancillary income, and then we take a look at their pay stubs, see how much they're withholding, and you know, shoot the messenger, but clients would much rather know today that they need to withhold an extra $50 a week than find out in April that they owe $2,000 for taxes. Yep. And what this really, in my opinion, boils down to is, you know, like you said earlier, tax planning is throughout the year. It's not just, right. oh, here's my return on April 15th. Right. Um, by then you're done, or if you look at it even in October, November of the year, you only have a couple weeks to really make a lot of changes. Right. If you're, if you're owing a lot or if you're getting a big refund, and you want that money during the course of time, the, right? Yeah, you got to make that change soon. And one way you can do that is by going to your employer, uh, going through HR, and getting a, it's called a Form W 4, and that'll yeah. allow you to change your withholding amounts. Right. And so historically, it was either single, married, number of dependents, but that's changed a bit with the tax code. So what I tell people, which I think is the easiest thing in the world to do, is if you need to withhold an extra 50 bucks every pay period, you fill out your W-4 the way you had it before and say, withhold an extra 50 bucks. Don't get any more simple than that. So uh, we're up against our break. Um, please stay tuned. Uh, after our commercial break, we'll see you in a moment. Have you saved enough for retirement? Are you financially prepared for an emergency or unexpected event? Have you thought about your financial future? Hi, I'm Mike Manager, founder of Manager & Associates Financial Planning. For over 20 years, we have been answering our clients' questions just like these as we develop unique and comprehensive financial plans tailored to meet their needs. When addressing your financial plan, we incorporate your entire financial picture, including taxes, estate planning, as well as investment planning and retirement planning. So call us today for a complimentary, no obligation consultation. A unique approach to financial planning. Welcome back to Financial uh, Financial plan. <laughs> I can't even explain my own show. But financial planning explained, and I'm Mike Manager, the host, uh, certified financial planner, and I have Kyle, who's also a certified financial planner, and I've got Ryan next to me, who is a CFP registrant. So soon enough, we'll all be financial uh, C CFPs. Anyway, here we are with a unique episode where we're continuing on with our questions and answers, and let's keep it going. What's next? If I work at a small company that does not offer a 401k, what is a good general approach to investing slash retiring 
Well, I assume as a 25-year-old you know. that he's not planning on retiring. <laughs> I think you got to figure it out at that point. Yeah. Right? Exactly. <laughs> yeah, let's, you know, have him tell us yeah. what yeah. the uh, how'd you get there? But uh, you want to pick that up, Ryan? This is this is very similar to one of the earlier questions we had. Uh, what would you What would you recommend this individual? Uh, sure. So, I mean, if you if you don't have a 401k option available to you at work. Um, you could always open up an investment account, um, such as a Roth IRA, um, which helps your money grow tax-free for the rest of your life. Um, but it, it depends on your flexibility, because if you, you know, let's say you want a tax deduction, then maybe an IRA makes right. sense. Um, or if you want some, you know, flexibility with being able to, you know, take capital losses and harvest capital, capital gains, you might want a non-qualified account. Yeah, regular um, investment account, correct. Yeah, so, so those those are some good ways uh, to you know uh, invest if you don't have a four hundred one k option available to you at your employer. Right. Yeah. Okay. You know whether it's the IRA or the Roth IRA, uh, we had um, many discussions on that. In fact, I may even have an entire episode of one of my earlier episodes dedicated to the traditional versus the Roth. Yep. Um, it all depends on what your taxable situation is and what your uh, needs for the money and when. And again, just paying down debts too. That's always a good way yeah, you know, to tackling debts. It's without a doubt. All right, what's our next question? Where else should my husband and I, both 38, besides a 401k, HSA, 529s on our Roths, which we fully fund Fully each fund. Year. Wow. Wow. Okay, cool. <laughs> Wanna go through okay. the contribution limits on this? <laughs> oh my goodness, holy cow. So if they're both 38, they're contributing 19,500 each to their 401k, which 39, is 39,000. 39, HSA is in the 7,000 range. Right. 529 plans, quite frankly, are unlimited. You can contribute something to the tune of $425,000 per person and they're Roths. And if they're contributing that much, chances are their income does not. So I'm guessing the intent of the question <laughs> was not, but it's a good question. So apparently we've got a couple who are doing well. And so one of the things that I want to comment on that question is, I hear people, and we see it all the time, how much are you contributing to your 401k? I am maxing it out. <laughs> the match. <laughs> right. And I take a look at their pay stub. I'm like, well, you know, you're contributing 6%. Oh, yeah, I'm maxing it out. No, you're maxing out what the company is going to match. You're nowhere near matching maxing out because the maximum contribution is 19,500 and if you've achieved age uh, 50 then it's an additional 6,500 you could put $26,000 a year in per person or in their case under 50 but here again um, it, it's a great question I would love to be able to uh, really really answer it because of the fact that as we discussed the answer to almost every question is it depends and I would love nothing more than to fully understand what is meant by that, you know. So if they fully funded their Roths and they fully funded their 401k and their HSA and their 529s, then we take a look and 
say, what are their goals and objectives? And I was just going to say, start, you know, potentially speak to a financial planner and develop a plan. Um, you know, create flexibility and divert diversification. You know, right. you've got a right. lot of money, you know, you're tied up in the stock market. Maybe get a non-qualified account. You know, there's always, there's always new avenues for diversification. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Next question. On a broad scale, <laughs> when is the best time to sell a stock <laughs> or investment? Yeah. yeah, sell <laughs> the it the day I bought it. Because <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, you know it's going, it's going down. down at that point. You know, actually, I, I, wrote a, I wrote a paper on this. I wrote an article on this uh, for a magazine, and I believe it's also on my website, specifically saying, when do I sell my investment? And, you know, so I, I started off the article by saying, the easiest thing in the world to do is buy an investment. The hardest thing in the world to do is sell it. Because when the stock is up, I don't want to sell it. It's doing really well. But when the stock is down, I don't want to sell it. I want to get my money back. Got to come back. Right. It's, <laughs> and it's going to come back. And, you know, and so having uh, survived and lived through, which I think the dot-com bubble was a lot more indicative of a false market where the things go way up and way back down, as opposed to 2008, which was a, a systemic global financial crisis. Um, the, the one in 99 to 2000, when, when the tech stocks were taken off, you know, selling an investment, man, you know, never be afraid to take a profit. No. You know, nobody ever loses money when they take a profit. Uh, don't be afraid to take a profit, even if the stock is up. Um, you know, take into tax considerations yeah that's right that's what i was going to say you know if you're in a non-qualified account not an ira not a 401k or not a roth or anything you know if you invest ten thousand it turns into a hundred thousand you're going to be paying taxes on that if you sell it all in one year so right. you have to start you know you got to consider that and how long you hold it is very important that's correct whether or not you hold it for a year and a day or shorter than that determines whether or not you have favorable tax treatment that's correct and if you if you hold a stock that has appreciated very well and you wish to sell it, but you're just not sure what the right time is, or you think, eh, maybe it could go up more, but I want to hold on to it. There are certain investment, um, I call them instruments that can be used, uh, such as a trailing, trailing stop. Trailing stop, I knew you were going to say where, that. Where you, know, you can you know, target a percentage or a dollar amount to your stock, and if it falls from whatever price you set it at, buy that certain dollar amount or percentage it automatically sells. Which is great because yeah. what happens is that if you buy, and I'm going to use Apple, I'm not here to promote Apple, mm -hmm. it just seems like the most common stock. If you buy Apple stock and you put a trailing stop at, let's say, 5%, that means it'll only get sold if it goes down 5%. But if it goes up, then that trailing stop of 5% follows it all the way up. Right. And when it does that, so let's say, for instance, Apple, you buy it for $100 a share, and you put a 5% trailing stop, 5% of 100 is 5. If it drops below 95, then you sell the stock, which means you're limiting your losses. But if the stock goes all the way up to 200, 5% of 200 is 10, and if all of a sudden it starts coming back down again, boom, you're out at 190, and look what you did. You locked in your gains. Yep. And boy, I'll tell you what, if people were aware of that in the 90s, the late 90s into 2000, a whole lot less pain would have been experienced. And, and I really like the, that strategy because it takes the emotion out of it. Correct. And that's what gets in the way of people selling their investments is, ah. you know, my emotions. But yep. you got to, the best investors, in my opinion, are the ones that operate off 
you know, fundamental analysis. They right. leave the emotions out of it. Right, absolutely. And so one of the things that I sort of jokingly say, but it's the truth. If I owned 100 shares of Apple and I'm not sure if I want to sell it, sell half. <laughs> because if it goes up, at least I still got half. But if it goes down, at least I sold half. <laughs> yep. And that's a horrible investment strategy. But, <laughs> but what's it doing? It's a tying into the emotions. Yep. Okay. Never be afraid to take a gain. Locking in your profits. And, you know, so uh, put $10,000 into investment, it grows to 30. What's wrong with taking your original 10 out? Yep. You know, and I think a lot of people didn't do that in the late 90s. People aren't doing that with cryptocurrency. And I'm going to leave it at that because <laughs> we're not supposed to talk about that topic. So anyway, um, next question. Oh, I'm going to grab this one. My employer offers stock ownership in our company. Can you ex please explain net unrealized appreciation? That is a very little known topic. Yeah. Very few people know that. I, I would say most CPAs, most CFPs, and I've bumped into many accountants that have never heard of it. It's NUA. What NUA is, is in this particular instance, and I would like to pivot off of this and talk about another topic called employee stock purchase programs, which is a completely different thing, but that's what, when I saw offer stock ownership, that's the first thing that came to my mind. But net unrealized appreciation, in my 21 years, I've probably only used it eight times, nine times. But the irony of it is if I've used it, say, nine times, six times have been in the last three or four years. So the way net unrealized appreciation works is it usually only works for somebody who's been in with a company for a very long time and has been buying the stock inside the 401k. Very clear, inside the 401k. So if they've accumulated say $100,000 worth of stock inside their 401k, and they paid $10,000 for it when they were buying it, you know, many, many years ago. Well, the problem is, is if they roll over their 401k to an IRA, they're going to have to pay ordinary income tax on all of that $100,000. But if it's the company that you work for, and you roll it over in its entirety, then it enables you to actually carve out that $100,000 worth of stock, pay $10,000, and now it's treated as long-term capital gain. And I tell you, there's a lot of planning stuff because every time I've done it, you know, I had a client where she was with GE and she had $66,000 worth of stock that she had paid $13,000 for. And what we did is we had her pull it out Okay, and this is an old 401k, and I had her driving all of her income into her 401k to offset the $13,000 cost. And then subsequently the next year, we were able to sell all of the GE stock. We paid no tax on any wow. of it. Right. Yeah. And it's all about proper planning. And so, you know, working it, and he who knows uh, the tax rules usually does better at the game. So it uh, looks like we are uh, running out of time for this particular episode on our questions and answers. I'm having fun with it. These are great questions that were asked. 
Uh, oh, I didn't talk about the employee stock purchase program. So employee stock purchase program, the way that works is not all companies do it, but a lot of companies give you the ability to contribute a percentage of your pay to the company stock. And what they do is you buy the stock at a discount. The most common one is at 15%. And so if I you know, put $1,000 over a period of time and the stock price is $50, well, 15% discount is $42.50. I'm buying the stock at $42.50. Okay? So that if I turn around and sell the stock, guess what? I'm locked in for a gain. That's not a bad thing, right? So um, these programs are really cool, and you got to check out the, the, the one. The guy, one guy worked at Net, Network Appliance, NetApp, and what they did is they looked at, and, and ESPPs oftentimes look at what was the value of the stock at the beginning of the quarter, what was it at the end of the quarter, and they give you the lower of the two prices. So if it ended the quarter at 50 and began the quarter at 40, they give you 15% off the 40. That's not bad. Right? Yeah. This guy worked for Network Appliance. And what happened was they looked at the end of six months going back two years. There is a time that he was buying the stock. It rocketed. And he's buying the stock for the price from two years earlier. And the stock almost tripled. Yeah. Wow, that's not bad. <laughs> There's a term for not it. bad. Really, really cool. <laughs> so anyway, uh, I, I believe in the ESPPs. I think they're a great tool. Um, but once again, it all comes down to the financial planning goals and objectives, and you know, combining all of your goals, objectives, understanding your tax planning, understanding your retirement planning, and all of it falls into financial planning. And so, thank you for tuning in. Uh, we still have more questions, I understand, from our producer. So we will be bringing those in and we will bring it in for our next episode where we will continue on with the questions and answers. Thank you for joining us today. Have a wonderful week and we will see you next week.